Okay, I'm Taylor, I'm a pastor here, and I welcome you in Christ's name. I'm excited to get into this amazing word this morning. So, imagine, um, I'm going to take a sip, settle in. Imagine with me, if you will, a, this is kind of a silly illustration, so bear with me. It may or may not work. Uh, a council of animals and men, mainly animals, lots of fur, and the whole, the problem, the reason for the council is that the, uh, the whole earth has been deforested, and all these all these solutions are being proposed, and finally, at the end of things, when everyone's getting tired and nothing satisfactory has been proposed, a little squirrel speaks up, and I'm not going to try to do a squirrel voice. It just crossed my mind to try, to try it, but that's a, <laughs> them's bad idea genes. I didn't put those on this morning. I almost did. Um, but a squirrel uh, pipes up and says, hey, I have an idea. How about we take an acorn and, and kill it, bury it in the ground, and just let it sit there and die? And everyone looks at the squirrel like, are you serious? That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. But if you think about it, and you probably already have, let's just assume these people don't know how trees grow, right? If you think about it, from that one acorn, an oak acorn, let's say it is, um, one oak tree might grow, but it has to die first in the ground, right? And from that, an acorn, a, a tree comes. Everything necessary for that tree is in that little seed, and from that oak tree, there will be hundreds and thousands even of acorns that are able to populate, to reforest the earth. Has the, that one acorn has the potential in it to reforest the earth, but first it has to die. Okay, so, so not knowing that, the, the animals and, and, uh, and humans might just say, that is the most stupid, that's ridiculous. It's weak, it's a terrible idea, it's ridiculous, it's even moronic. Um, okay, let, let me try a couple different, I'm not just leaning on that illustration. If that didn't work for you, let's move on to something else. Let's go classical, let's go the classical world. Let's go Trojan horse. Let's go um, the Iliad. Let's go the Greeks attacking Troy, attacking the Trojans. And, you know, they, for years and years they've been attacking this, sit, this walled city and they can't penetrate, they can't win. And so what do they do? We all know they have this idea. And so up one, one day wheels this, this gift, this toy, this massive wooden horse on wheels. And so the Greeks, uh, rather the Trojans, open up their city gates and bring the horse in. And it seems like a stupid thing. It seems weak and moronic and like a waste of time. This, isn't, this is war. Why are you building big toy horses? But actually we know what happened there. It was brilliant. Inside, it got inside the bowels of their enemy and opened up. And inside of it were soldiers, Greek soldiers, and they ravaged and burned the city, opened up the gates from the inside, and in came the Greeks to, to destroy Troy. And so it's a similar idea. It seems foolish. It seems weak. But it releases this power, and it means victory, and it wins. Last, last illustration. You know where I'm going. I'm going Lord of the Rings. Got to. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the, the ring, it's all about this, this ring and this that they find this ring of power, but the problem is whenever you put it on, it makes you invisible, that's so, sort of irrelevant, it's a nice plot device, but really, it gives you this incredible power. But with that power comes corruption, but there are a lot of naive people that don't realize that, and so it's this huge weapon, and it was, it was forged by the dark Lord Sauron, and only he can wield it, and he's evil, and so it also sort of takes advantage of whatever fallenness is in you. And so the fellowship gets together and says, what do we do with this ring? And the whole plot is essentially driven by the idea that they do the most foolish thing possible. They decide to, sort of like the squirrel decides to destroy the acorn, right? Kind of like the Trojan horse, but even better. They decide, let's, here, here's the thing. With the ring of power, rather than using it to defeat the enemy like anyone else would do, like Sauron would certainly do, Let's take it into the middle of the enemy, into the heart of darkness, right into his enemy camp, under his nose, with our two weakest little creatures, hobbits. Hairy feet, second breakfast, they love mushrooms, all that. And let's destroy it. Really? Kind of like Seinfeld. Really? You know, that's his famous, okay, you're, maybe you're too young for Seinfeld, I don't know. Okay, really? It just seems ridiculous. There's a, there's a character in the book called Boromir, and he's a wonderful warrior, and he's the son of a steward next to the king, and he, he doesn't get this at all. He wants to use the ring of power. Here's a bit of his soliloquy. 
He says to Frodo, it says, Boromir strode up and down, speaking even more loudly. He's arguing to let's use the ring. Almost he seemed to have forgotten Frodo while his talk dwelt on walls and weapons and the mustering of men. And he drew plans for great alliances and glorious victories to be. And he cast down Mordor and he became himself a mighty king, benevolent and wise. Suddenly he stopped and waved his arms. And they tell us to throw it away, he cried. I do not say destroy it. That might be well if reason could show us any hope of doing so. It does not. The only plan that is proposed to us is that a halfling, a hobbit, should walk blindly into Mordor and offer the enemy every chance of recapturing it for himself. Folly. The word he ends that with. Folly. And that is the perfect word to sort of as an entree into this word that Paul has for us this morning. He is saying, look, this is exactly what God has done in Christ. I have a friend who calls God Jehovah Sneaky sometimes. And uh, Jehovah Sneaky, bordering on irreverent, but if you know God and you even dive into this text, you see that's perfect. God in the cross is being so, so sneaky. It seems like foolishness. It seems like folly. Uh, and it is indeed folly to the world. God, Paul is showing us just how sneaky and how wise and powerful through apparent weakness, through apparent foolishness, God is through the cross of Christ Jesus. Um, and there's a text that Paul uses here. He goes back to, it's a text from Isaiah, 700 years before a prophecy in verse 19. We read it here. And um, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, discerning of the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he's casting ahead. This is always the way God works, but it's consummate in the cross. And he's casting ahead centuries to Christ. Now, Isaiah didn't know it here. Nobody knew it here. But um, in the context of that, it says, um, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. The wonder of the cross, in part, is it's utter foolishness. It appears to be folly. So let's start out with the wisdom of man. Verses 18 through 25, this first chunk, this first section of this glorious word by Paul. Um, if you look at verse 20, it says, where is the wise, one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he, and he goes on to say, the Greeks seek wisdom. And he talks about the debater of this age. So stepping back a bit to just sink into this culture. So Corinth, we talked about last week, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It's on the southern Peloponnese. It's, it's sort of on the isthmus between the Greek mainland and the southern Peloponnese, okay? And so it's Greece, and it's under Roman control, but the culture has been, it's Hellenic, it's Greek. And that whole culture is all about polished rhetoric, high-flown oratory. It's what increasingly in their trivium and quadrivium, in, in their educational system, what they taught increasingly. And it wasn't just an art form. It was for politics. It was for the control of all things. This polished speech, this eloquent rhetoric. Um, it was called the Queen of Subjects. Um, H.I. Moreau in A History of Education in Antiquity says, Hellenistic culture was above all things a rhetorical culture. Um, professional rhetoricians would travel through Corinth on a regular basis and kind of put on shows, sort of like, like comedians if we go to a comedy show today. I mean, amazing speakers, everything's polished down to the second. Talking about Seinfeld, the guy, he just seems like he's up there doing stuff off the cuff, but he's, he's got it down to the second. Um, and, uh, or like going to see a debate, we don't do that much anymore. I mean, you can't even call the presidential debates debates anymore, can you? But once they were, and we know what debates are, and so these, this sort of thing was, was the thing in Corinth. It was the thing. Um, and you had people called rhetors, from which we get rhetoric, in, in every big city. That was just very common. And they would educate wealthy, the, uh, the, the children of wealthy patrons, okay? So let me just give you a small taste, get a little, get a little uh, um, primary source here, a small taste of an, just an example of a eulogy, just the sectioning and the divisioning of a eulogy. A typical eulogy in this culture where you're speaking well about someone that's passed, would have been about 36 sections and subsections. 36, all right? Let me just, I'm not gonna read them all, but it starts with exterior excellencies. A, noble birth, eugenia. B, environment, native city, fellow citizens, excellence of the city's political regime, parents and family. 
See personal advantages. Education, friends, fame, public service, wealth, children, number, and beauty of. Seven, happy death. Two, bodily excellences. Health, strength, beauty, bubbling vitality, and capacity for deep feeling. That's all one word if you can believe it in the Greek. Spiritual excellencies. There's a list of seven virtues and then resultant actions. It's just, it's amazing. But this, is, this was what Corinth breathed. This was Corinth's environment. This was the culture of Greeks taken over by Rome. And into this, Paul is preaching the gospel. He's planting a church. He's writing a letter. And he's talking about what God has done in Christ. Um, so the Greeks were the cultured. They were the, they were the cultured. They were the civilized. Everyone else was a barbarian to them. And it is with, so it is with us to, to probably a larger degree than we might admit now, would care to admit. We Americans, we're sort of, it's changing, but we're, we still think of ourselves as the center of, you know, the globe, although that's, again, that's changing. We're, we live in a global village, but especially in the cities and on the coasts, um, on, the, on the coast especially you hear, um, you know, all the culture comes inward. It's all created there, and there's a scoffing for, it wasn't the case always in America, but now there's, there's really a, um, a very clear scoffing at um, faith. You know, there's, there's thinking, there's rationale, there's science, and then there's, there's faith. And, and certainly at Christianity, evangelicalism, that hasn't been helped by the religious right and the sort of the wedding of polit- policy and, and, uh, and the church. But um, so there's, a, there's still, we can ima- easily imagine how there's a sort of scoffing at, at this, we kind of live in some of that, and there's some of that in us as we live in, in a city. We, and what, even if we don't identify with that, all of us yearn to be, and I've encountered this even over the past, in some individuals, and I have it in my own heart, over the past couple weeks even, there's a desire, even if we're in the church, or let's say we go to church every now and again, there, there's a desire to be respectable and to be respected deep in all of us. And if we go to a church, um, we, we want it to be a respectable church with respectable people who maybe they dress up or maybe they this or that or the other. Um, and, um, and so if, we're, if we weren't, in the only, maybe some of the, the only reason we consider Christianity is because we're just sort of going along with things. We're kind of playing the game. And if it wasn't respectable, we wouldn't do it. But what Paul is saying here is this is not at all respectable. This is utter foolishness to the world, and it always will be. It always will be. Um, so if you look at verse 18, um, Paul talks to us about, oh, excuse me, let me, let me, let me pop up for one second and, and, um, and mention too, I talked about the Greeks, we're, we're, in the, we're talking about the wisdom of man, but let me talk about the Jews for a second. Um, even Paul says, he, he puts them in there too. The Greeks and the Jews both scoff at the idea of a crucified Messiah, and we're gonna get there in a second, okay? But the Jews were confounded. God's own people to whom he'd given the oracles of God, Romans 9, they were confounded by the seeming folly of this weak Messiah. Um, Paul says, they thought they had the market cornered on what God is doing. Messiah, what's he gonna come do? He's going to come crush the Romans. He's not going to be crushed by the Romans. That's not, that's not the plan. You know, can I just pause here and say, we can think that we know. These people knew the Old Testament better than you ever will. Just going to go ahead and say that. You, you, you can think that you know God's word and know what he's saying and completely miss it. They did. It was the religious elite, God's own people, who ended up crucifying him. But we'll get to this in a second. Notice how it was everybody. It was Romans, it was, it was Greeks, it was Jews, it was all of us. So Paul captures all of us in this. Oops, we were tricked. It was folly to us. We missed it. But thank God he's using it for our benefit. So even the Jews missed it. Where is the scribe? The Jews demand signs. They were demanding signs when Jesus was on the earth over and over again. Show us the sign. And he said, look, no more signs for you. He said, if, if, if you would only believe what you already have, the words of Moses, the law, the Torah, the foundation for the Old Testament, you would believe in me. But you think, you have the whole thing memorized and I'm standing right in front of you, John 5, and you're missing me. All that points to me. So we need to submit our own understanding, what we think we know, 
to God Almighty and understand that the word is for us to encounter the living God in the person of Christ. It's not, it's not to get a head trip and get proud. That's not what it's for. Um, and Jesus said, he goes, yeah, Moses, if you believe Moses, you believe in me. Abraham, he says, saw my day and rejoiced. What? You're, only, you're not even 50 yet and Abraham saw you? Yeah, all of it points to me, but they missed it. And so did the Greeks, okay? Um, so man's actual condition, verse 18, what does Paul say? He starts out our passage with, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Remember how I talked about respectability? We all desire to be respectable. We all do, okay? But what does Paul, he pulls back the curtain on actually our own condition. And we can put up a good front, y'all. Man, we all can. And everyone we know can, but don't be fooled by your own front and don't be fooled by the front of your neighbors and your coworkers and don't think God is fooled because here's your actual condition, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, what? To those who are perishing. What is the actual condition of we who are outside of Christ? Of we who have not said yes to God's Messiah who saves us. The actual condition of those outside of Christ is that they are, this is a participle, they are in a state of perishing. They are in a state of being continually undone, unraveled like a ball of yarn. If you can imagine like a cat just pulling at a ball of yarn. That's your constitution and forever. This is what hell is, is being forever, eternally unmade, unpersoned, unhumaned, undone. And what Jesus does is he makes you what you were always created and meant to be. He makes us more human not superhuman, he's the only true human. There was Adam and then he fell and then there's Jesus, the second Adam. The second, Adam in Hebrew means man, by the way. Jesus is called the second man. All the rest of us were wraiths in shadows and now he is remaking us. But those who are outside of Christ, friends, perishing. Perishing, dead and dying. And, and what is the cross gonna be to them? Man, we should argue for it. We should you know, build up our apologetic cases. We should offer mere Christianity. I have a friend that's like buying Copies of Mere Christianity for coworkers like they're freaking hotcakes. They're just flying off the, it's awesome, man. And I've seen it, and, and all that's so good, but it is gonna be folly in the end to those who are perishing. Um, okay, so that is the wisdom of man. Let's talk about the foolishness of God, verses 26 through 31, before chapter two concludes or begins, the foolishness of God, and therefore of those of us who are in God, in Christ, who follow God, followers of God. Okay, Jews to the Jews, let's start with them first since we ended with them. It, it was the, the wisdom or the foolishness of God, rather, in Messiah, in, in the way that God came to conquer sin and death and hell, was scandalous and blasphemous. It was scandalous and blasphemous. So um, let me just read Deuteronomy 21, 22, okay? This is uh, a word of Moses toward the end of his writing in the Torah, and he says this, he says, and if a man has, this is God's word, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, listen to this, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So what is this saying? If you put a man on a tree and hang him on that tree, according to God's very word, according to the law of the Jews, the oracles of God, he is, a, he is cursed by God. A Messiah coming, first of all, as a poor man, uneducated, and claiming to be the son of God, that was scandalous to them. But more, claiming to be God himself and then dying on a tree and becoming a curse, this is not their idea of Messiah, even though the scriptures foretold it. You see, we can think that we know the scriptures and be completely blind to the purposes of God. And, and this is what happens. And, and, and he becomes a curse, and as he's doing that, he's taking their place and yours and mine, and they, just in their theological paradigm, in their construct, they think this is not Messiah. Messiah is not weak. This is foolishness. This is utterly scandalous. This is blasphemous. This is a stumbling block. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. Um, it was folly. The word that Paul uses there, I, I, I brought in this Boromir quote where he says, Folly! at the end for a reason, because the word Paul uses in the Greek, it's translated in various ways, foolishness, but it literally just means foolishness or folly or um, moronicness, okay? Um, the, the word is moria, 
from which we get our word moronic, I believe. I didn't look that up, okay? Um, but to the, to the Gentiles, to, to the nations, the word is ethne in the Greek, to everyone else that's not a Jew, the Jews, so the Greeks thought of everyone else as, as barbarians. The Jews thought of, people groups tend to do this, right? The Jews thought of everyone else as uh, just the nations, you know, or the Gentiles, or the Greeks. You know, they kind of lumped them all together. But to them, it was folly, foolishness. They're, they're used to polish and rhetoric and high-flown stuff in these amazing, you know, platonic and, and uh, sophi- uh, sophistic arguments. Um, and uh, and, and this, is a, this is a God that became a man, be God, and he died on, a, on, a, on, a, on an object of shame that's, that you don't even talk about in this culture. You wouldn't even talk about the cross in polite conversation. It wasn't just an instrument of death. It was an instrument of shame and torment where you hung up the worst of criminals for all to see. Don't be like that guy. Behold the power of the Roman state. Would God really, is this really God's plan? Really? No. So Moria, again, back to the Lord of the Rings, it's like a black hole, keeps sucking me in. Um, Moria, it means folly. Literally, the word means folly, and that's the word Paul uses here in the Greek. The cross is Moria to anyone that's not a Jew. It's just ridiculous. Tolkien, if you've read Lord of the Rings, you know the minds of Moria, what happens in those minds? Well, okay, I'm not going to totally spoil it for you if you haven't read it, but bad stuff. They lose some of their party, and they're, you know, and also the before whatever happens, happens, they have to cut through that mountain, so they think, because there's no other way to get to where they're going. But decades and perhaps centuries before that, dwarves have delved too deep into the earth, and they were greedy for what the earth had to yield, and because of that, they awoke dark things. You know, it's like Gandalf says when the Balrog's coming, this, is, this foe is beyond any of you. Run! You know, and so they awoke. They awoke. Your sword is of no avail here. Sorry, I could go on all day. But um, they wake things up. Your, your sword will not avail you. Um, sorry, okay. We're going to pause and we're going to keep going with the sermon. They, they woke things up through their greed that they shouldn't have woken up. Folly. All that to say, the minds of Moria, what is, Tolkien, Tolkien was a philologist, which means for the, he was one of the foremost in the world. For, his, for a living, he studied language. His Greek was, he was on, his, he was on point. He knew, he knew what Moria meant in the Greek. It means the minds of folly. This is what Paul is saying here, foolishness. Um, let's unpack this just a touch. Think about the irony and the nonsensical nature, ostensibly, of the cross to a Greek mind. It's an instrument of death. And you're telling me that an instrument of death and shame and torture um, um, to those, see, the instru- an instrument of death to those who are perishing, who are dying, who are in a state of being undone, is moria. It's foolishness. Um, it's a stench. So I'm dying, and you're telling me the only path to life is one that it requires embracing an, instru- an instrument of death and torment and shame. Again, it wasn't even talked about in polite Roman culture. Um, it's paradoxical. The way to life, friends, is death. It's death. It's identifying with this Savior. It's saying he died in my place. It's climbing onto that cross thereby by faith and crucify me with you, bury me, and raise me again to a new type of life. That's, that's, that's paradox. That seems foolish. The way to being made clean is what? Being washed in someone's blood. What? Um, the way to peace and wholeness is by Worshiping a Savior who was ripped asunder, whose flesh was completely shredded and torn. And in, in a sense, identifying with him by faith and being shredded and torn and ripped asunder ourselves that we might, what, find peace, shalom, Hebrew, wholeness. It, it, it's, it doesn't make sense on one level. It defies, one commentator says, all purely rational understanding. And the Greeks and the Corinthians prided themselves on this. Um, and again, as I, said, as I touched on earlier, all are included in this rejection of God. Jews and everyone else, we, we are included. Paul includes all mankind in the rejection of the crucified Messiah. We've all rejected him. Until you own that, you really can't gain from the cross. It was we who put him there. And he used that to save us. How beautiful. Um, my father-in-law employed a man, and he, I remember he was a bit odd, and, and um, 
he employed a man, and then in his next life, so 20 years later, they were working together again, and he employed him again. And I remember commenting to my father-in-law, this guy's a bit, he's a bit off. Give me, give me a read on him. And because uh, for a moment, I was working for my father-in-law. And he said, he said, blank, this guy, let's call him Jim. He's a broken machine. He's a broken machine. And uh, I thought about that for a while. And that aside, I think that is a great way of describing the world that Christ stepped into, the world that Paul is talking about here. This world pre-Christ, when Christ steps onto the scene, even his own people rejected him. He was the only light in, in a world of darkness, of inky black. This world, this whole cosmic system was a broken machine. And what did Christ do on the cross, friends? He took by being broken and in his life. His suffering did not start when he got on the cross. His suffering started, his atonement for you, his representing you started the minute he was placed by the Holy Spirit inside the womb of Mary. And when he grew up, when he was born a poor child and crying with all the pain that we cried with when we came into this earth, came into the world crying, left it crying in more pain than you ever will, I assure you of that, but rose victorious. And what what he did in his life, all of your salvation, this is a bit of an aside, and I've said it before, but it's worth saying right now, all of your salvation and mine rode on every single decision and word Christ ever made. It wasn't just on the cross. It wasn't just on the cross. If he had ever told a lie, if he had ever done anything that wasn't perfectly loving to the Father and to his neighbor, if there had ever been an impurity, any yielding to any temptation, we would all be lost. His life is for you, not just his death. And in his life, and especially in his death, at that cross, the cross stands for all that Christ is and has done for us. On that cross, Christ took the broken system into himself. All of it. All of it. And what did he do? He killed it and he buried it. Which is why, as I preached a couple weeks ago, the resurrection is such a big deal. It's not just a guy rising from the dead. It's the guy who left the broken system in the ground and rose to a completely new order. And anyone who is in him is going that way. Not because of your faithfulness, but because of his. Amen. Amen. I've never clapped while preaching, but that was for the Lord, so. <laughs> it's because Tommy's here. We're getting rowdy. All right. Amen. The old has gone, Paul says elsewhere. The new has come. It can only come through the cross. His foolishness is our salvation. The, the, the wisdom of the ages from Mesopotamia to Egypt to Persia to, to Greeks to Rome, the wisdom of the ages, Paul says, could not attain. It, it fell far short of getting to God. It could not attain to his salvation. It could not get to God. It was like, um, you, you've heard the, the old tried and true of you know, us trying to get, do enough stuff to, to get to God is like me jumping and trying to get to the moon. It's like, I'm closer, but not a lot. You know, and that's not even a good illustration because when I try to get to God like that, I'm actually going down. You know? but, uh, so we're, we're building our towers. We're trying to get up there, and, and it's just not even close. It's a joke. It's worse than a joke. It's because it's we think we're getting somewhere, and we're actually going down. So what does God do in all of our building? He, get, he takes a ladder, again, to use a simple, simple illustration, and he takes it from his home in heaven where things are perfect, where he is in love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the holy angels there in, in a, this perfect environment where God is. And he comes down, and he enters our broken machine with his ladder. And that ladder is called the Incarnation. And he does it for us. And he does it for us. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He goes not only down to earth, but down to hell, to the lowest place, to the lowest place. Philippians 2, all the way down. Left God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, what does that weird King James translation mean? Anyone else, if we considered ourselves equal to be God, we would be robbing him of glory. Not Christ, not Jesus. It's not robbery for him to be considered equal with God because he is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the son of God, beloved of the Father. And he left all that glory and all that privilege to come down to be shamed for you, to take the world's broken world system into himself, to bury it, and to give you the glory that he had 
and to share it with you and to share him. Here it is, and I'm going to end with this. I'm not, in, I'm not there yet, but we're going to get there. To share that glory with you, to share himself with you. That's where Paul ends. What is salvation? Is salvation a thing? Is it a list of to-dos? No. Hell no. It's him. It's him. It's Jesus. Amen. God's own fool, the Messiah, his power was displayed through utter weakness. I want to read. I thought about singing them, but I better not again. Bad idea, jeans. I might, I might break out into the tune, but Michael Card, God's own fool, old school, 80s. Let me read it to you. It seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad, and the priest said a demon's to blame. But God, in the form of this angry young man, could not have seemed perfectly sane. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. God has always worked this way. He didn't just start working this way when Jesus came on the scene, right? So just a few of the many examples. Moses, Moses, the man of God, the humblest man on the face of the earth, the one the Jews looked to that gave them the law through God, God through him rather. He thought he was on top of his game at age 40. He went to the Harvard of the Middle East, you know, the Egyptian courts. He was raised there. He had all the power, all the education, all the, all the strength, and he murdered a man trying to set the, his people free, and he got pushed out in the wilderness and for the next 40 years, he got dried up, pushing sheep around. He was 80. He, he was as good as dead. That's the point of that whole narrative. He was as good as dead. He lost all of his pride when God said, tap, tap. Now's the time. Let's go. God, you, that's foolish. Moria, foolishness. What? Weakness. Seriously? Yeah, that way, now you're not going to steal my glory. I got this. I do it all. Um, David. He, li- he gets lined up with his brothers, except he doesn't. You know, in, in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel comes to town to anoint a king and all, everyone knows it, and he's going to Jesse's house, so Jesse gets all of his boys lined up because someone's gonna be king, and it's like most impressive to least impressive, oldest to youngest or whatever, and he's got seven, the perfect number, the number of fullness in the Bible, so that's it, it's one of these guys. And so embarrassing, and I've preached it before, so I'm not gonna belabor it, but he gets to the end, Samuel's like, oh, God's saying no to all these guys. Surely this is all your sons, because I know you wouldn't have a son and not bring him here, because that'd be like a major insult. And, 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 uh, and, and uh, Jesse's like, uh, yeah, I have one more. He's the katon in the Hebrew. He's the runt. Bring him. We're not sitting down, and the barbecue's not starting until you bring him here. In he comes. That's the guy. That's the guy. The small guy. Weak, moronic, foolish. This is the way God works. Mary. A peasant girl, no name, no connections, as the God-bearer, as the God-bearer. Did it make her life harder? Did it make David's life harder? Did it make Moses' life harder? Oh, yeah. Better? Worthwhile? Eternally? Yes. From eternally perishing to eternally alive, made new, with God. And God still works this way. I have a whole list of folks. I'm not going to read them all, but let me just cup, hit on a couple. Paul is one of them. Let's start with him, the guy writing this letter. He's one of them. He was a former accomplice to murder, maybe a murderer himself of Christians. He, dra- he took great delight in dragging Christians off to jail. And God chooses him to, to be like the number one missionary on the planet. And not only that, but he is the Jew of Jews. He has the whole Bible memorized. He, was, he had the best schooling ever. He was the star pupil of the best teacher, Gamaliel. It's like the number one teacher at Harvard, he was, he, was that, he was the best pupil to that teacher, that kind of thing. But Jewish, 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 didn't touch the dogs, didn't touch the non-Jews. And what is he called to do? How do we know Paul? He's the missionary to the Gentiles. Really? Really? Seinfeld, yeah. That's just the way God does things. C.T. Studd. Um, he was a Britisher a couple centuries ago. He had a ton of money. He was a blue blood, went to Cambridge. He was like the Tiger Woods of his day. That's ex- I've heard that comparison made. He played cricket, which they're still into over there. And we're like, what's that? It's a flat bat? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. I was over there for four years. I still don't get it. But he was, he was the Tiger Woods of cricket. And he was a Cambridge boy. And he was part of a group called the Cambridge Seven. And so he was like the dude on every front. He had the education. He had the money. He had the athleticism. And good looks, and he left it all 
and he went to become a missionary in the Far East. And on his 21st birthday, when he came into his inheritance, he signed it all away. 25,000 pounds, I think it was, which is millions and millions and millions of dollars now. People thought, what a waste. What a waste. Eric Little, just one more. I'll just do one more. Eric Little. I'm reading a book called For the Glory right now. We've all heard of the movie Chariots of Fire in 1981. Best picture. If you haven't seen it, seen it. <gasps> because it's amazing. It's my number one favorite movie. Wow. And uh, that was the sort of Ace Ventura thing if you didn't. Okay. All right. Okay. How long have, how long have you been speeding? I don't know. How long were you following me? You know, how many rules have you broken? Um, hey, you got to see, you got to see Chariots of Fire. It's so good. Number one, Eric Little. Eric Little, Scotsman, born in China to missionary parents, comes over, educated at University of Edinburgh, my alma mater, whoop. And I don't think they whoop over there, but I'm going to whoop for him. Um, and he ended up stud, total stud, had it all, ended up winning the 1924 Paris Olympics. Not his event because he refused to run on the Sabbath, man of principle. Not his event, d- destroyed it anyway, got a, got a medal. He was a prince among his people when he came back. Never, I mean, he was, he was young. He's, he could have been at the top of his game in the next Olympics, could have just rode that, rode that, ridden that. And instead, he left it all, went back to China, and died uh, during Japanese occupation of China in a concentration camp. What was he doing? Serving people, loving people, sharing the gospel. Never mentioned to anyone, according to this book, what he did. They didn't care. What Olympics, what's that? Waste, right? Moria, foolishness. No, not in God's economy. Not in God's economy. To us, we who are rich, and, I, and some of you might be thinking, I'm not rich. Well, if you're here, you are, because we're in America, and we're in this city, and we're in this place, and we have so much, and we have these connections, and we have food on our plates, and we have stuff in our pantry, and we have a lot of gifts that have been given to us. And in our culture, um, we can think with all the talent in this room and everything we've been given, it's easy to think that we can give something to God of worth or that we don't need his help. And what does Jesus say about that? He says, therefore, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's impossible, actually, with that mentality. Because the reason that the poor tend to be so much closer to God and not more love than the rich, but they're so much more receptive to the idea that they can't offer God of themselves anything of worth, that he does it all. He put the ladder and came all the way down. We can offer God nothing of ourselves that's of worth. He alone is worthy, and that's our security. Because if, man, if you come into the kingdom thinking it's partly because of what I've done, then you better, you're going to have to keep it. Good luck with that. You're going to be dishonest with yourself for the rest of your life. I'm a worm. I, I did all this stuff to deserve what he took, and he loves me anyway. And you. And that's the gospel. So, uh, okay, so that's us. So often what has to happen, Christ, maybe we hear the gospel for the first time, maybe a crisis strikes in our lives where we realize, ha, whoa, my kingdom's falling apart. I need God. And there he is waiting in his humility, scanning the horizon, waiting to run out to you, to embrace you. And to stop you with your stupid speech about, Lord, I'm going to do this, this, this. Be quiet. You're my son. I sent my son for you. Come on in. We're having a party. That's God. That's God for each of you, but you got to come. Let me, let me finish the uh, God's own fool. He says this, and then the last point, and then we're done. God's own fool, um, Michael Card. I'm going to read that, the last few lines again. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. Here it is. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream, and you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say, I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. Isn't that good? What an honor to share the beam with him. We can never do what he did for us. It was a one-time deal. He finished it. But he invites us to come and to share the yoke with him. Paul, the one-trick pony. We're going to finish with that, with that fun, colorful little phrase. Point three, Paul, the one-trick pony. It takes us through the end of this, um, this section, two, one through five. Um, I have a friend who told me just this week, he said, my pastor, my old pastor, he has one sermon. 
really? What's that? He said, uh, everything that we chase after is a broken cistern. Cistern is something that holds water. It's broken. And Christ is the only thing, the only cistern that holds water, that never leaks, that satisfies. And he calls us to himself to slake our thirst in him. That's where we're finishing, right? In him. It's not a thing. It's him. What's salvation? It's not a place. It's him. It's him. Salvation is Christ, and that's what Paul lands on here. Um, that's Paul's one sermon. Uh, he's a one-trick pony. That was my New Testament professor from Philly, was fond of saying. Uh, he's a, he's a one-note Johnny. Um, he's preaching one thing, and that's this, Christ and him crucified. He said, I was determined in this culture of eloquence and rhetoric and polish to come and preach one thing to you and one thing alone. So you wouldn't focus on me and my words, but you would focus on the word that has power, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. If you're ever in a church, in a body of believers, where that's not the thing that everything else hangs on, that's constantly come back to, resurrection, ascension, what God's doing leading up to Christ, what God's doing coming again, new heavens and new earth, yes, but man, if the cross isn't the center, you need to leave fast and go have a talk with that pastor. Okay, everything comes out of the cross. There's no life without death, friends. Think about the acorn. Um, what does Paul say here? He believes that the word of the cross, verse 18, is the only power of God. I inserted that word only. The word of the cross is the power of God to save. Notice, notice Paul does not, notice what he does not say. He does not say, the cross is the power of God. I'm not saying that's not true. But what he says here is that the word of the cross is the power of God. Friends, this is why I preach. This is why we preach. We preach, the preaching is simply this, according to Paul. The cross articulated. The cross articulated. Okay? This is why we preach the cross all the time, like I'm saying. Because there is no resurrection life without death, without the bearing of, of the old system. Without the crucifixion of ourselves trying to get to God, trying to polish ourselves up, he took that into himself and he buried it. He killed it and he buried it. The word of the cross is the power of God. God is word. So when we preach the cross, God himself goes forth in power to work resurrection life. This is how it happens and it's a mystery. The results aren't up to us, but it is up to us. It's our charge to preach a Messiah who is crucified, a crucified Messiah. And that's exactly what Paul says here. He doesn't say, we preach, we preach the crucified Messiah. He says, we preach, the word is without a definite article. We preach a crucified Messiah. Really? Yeah, I know it seems like, it seems like folly. It offends the sensibilities of everybody. It's a scandal. It's a joke. But it's our salvation. It's our salvation. We preach a crucified Messiah who, who conquers through weakness, who brings life through death. Um, and notice too, crucified, it's actually hard to notice in the English, but it's a perfect participle, which means you would think that he would say, we preach a savior who was crucified. He doesn't use that tense. That's used elsewhere, but here he says, we preach, the sense is we preach a Christ who is not continually crucified, but the crucified one. Okay, he is, when we look at him, he is the one who, this thing happened in the past, but it has ongoing implications for today, and he will forever be, here's the sense, he will forever be the crucified one. Why, how do we know this? In part, because Paul says it, but also because what did Jesus do when he returned to his disciples? What did he look like? Same Jesus, but you're different in some ways, and what's going on, and what, what do we, how do we know for sure? You have the nail prints, not here, by the way, in the wrists. That's not accurate, because this would tear. In the wrists, in the ankles, not nails either, spikes, railroad spikes. Sword through, a spear through right here. Still has the holes, why? Everything else is made new about him. Why, why are these still here? Because the universe, the nexus point of the new creation in 10 billion years will always be one thing, the cross. The resurrected, the one who was crucified and resurrected for us the one who took the broken machine into himself and buried it and rose again, we will always be revolving around. That is our God. That tells us who he is and of his love, and it gives us orientation for the rest of all things, for the rest of all time. We will never get over the cross. It's not the ABCs, it's the A to Z of what we sing and of what the new creation will be built around. That's who we worship. That's who we worship, the crucified one.
okay? Um, so we stand assured because the work that he did, that he finished on the cross, he continues to represent us with the nail marks in his hands at the throne of power before God the Father Almighty forever. And so we know that we are in him and we're okay, okay? Um, now there's a lot on the Christ side of the ledger and what Paul finishes with here. Um, but there's a bit on the Paul side too, if I can say that. Um, Christ and his cross have done something to this man who used to be proud and full of arrogance and, and still full of knowledge, right? Um, in short, the word of the cross and Christ himself have crucified Paul. They've crucified his ambition to make a name for himself. And now his ambition is to make Christ's name great to, by preaching the cross. He puts aside his desire um, to be very good at what he could have been good at in the Corinthian world. He could, have, he could have played that game, but he didn't mind being forgotten by God, but by others because he knew he was known by God. Let me read a, a quote from Zach Eswine. He says, God is the remembered one, but this does not mean we are forgotten. In fact, being remembered by him means we no longer fear being forgotten by the world. That's in sensing Jesus. And Paul rattles off um, the benefits of Christ, not gonna spend much time on them at all, unfortunately, but verse 30, he said, Christ himself, not, we don't have it outside of Christ, again, sort of finishing with this, he himself is our wisdom. There's no wisdom outside of Christ. He himself is our righteousness. He is the, you're right, you're being right before God is you're being positionally in Christ. He makes you, faith in him makes you considered as he is by God the Father. That can never change. Sanct, he's our sanctification. He is the working out of that righteousness that is his and not ours that actually works itself into us, received by faith of the power of the Spirit over time. We become more and more and more as we truly are, like Christ. And finally, he's our redemption. He bought us off the slave block by becoming a slave in our place. Someone had to pay. He did. He did. And it's all in Christ. It's all relational. Like a branch to a trunk, think attachment, like parts of the body to a head, think if the head is severed from the body, then everything dies, okay? We have to be attached like a husband or a groom to a bride. These are all pictures of what Christ is to us and we to him. Um, Rankin Wilborn, a pastor out in LA, California, he, he has a grandparents that passed and uh, that he calls them deer and hacko. Is that the strangest name you've ever heard for grandparents? Mine were Peepaw and Meemaw and, and uh, Papa... Um, Papa and Nana, but he's got deer and hacko. And deer was apparently deer because the granddad said, no, my wife is too beautiful to ever be called grandma. So they called her deer, and hacko comes from a, like, a way that he garbled his granddad's name. But they were married for 70 years, and he says this in Union for Christ. He said, they had lived together for so long that they became truly one. Be, so they would finish each other's sentences, and you know, they knew what each other was doing, and they loved each other so well and all that. And he makes this point. He says, the minute they said, I do, they were officially married. They could never be more married than they were. The minute you say, I do to Christ, yes, I believe. You died in my place. You rose in my place. I'm alive in you. Yes. You will never be more united to Christ. You will never be more saved. And yet, and yet, that works itself out through our union with him relationally over time, doesn't it? And it changes us, and it makes us like Jesus, okay? It saves us as we, as truly as we are saved, we are being saved, Okay, just like those that are dead are also perishing. Um, lastly, Rankin Wilborn, he says this, too good not to say. Being a Christian is not about absorbing certain doctrines about God. I want you all to get this. Stay with me, focus in, and we're done. He says, being a Christian is not about absorbing certain doctrines about God. Man, those Pharisees had those doctrines nailed, and they're in hell now, most of them. Nor is it about being a better, or, and by the way, we have a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians here that have great doctrine that don't know God. Doctrine doesn't save you. Doctrine's a great thing that leads you into a personal relationship with the living God through Christ, okay? It's not about absorbing certain doctrines about God, nor is it about being a better or different kind of person. The goal is having a personal, vital, profoundly real relationship with God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. The goal is enjoying communion with God himself. Union with Christ is not an idea to be understood, but a new reality to be lived by faith. And Paul finishes just by saying, look, this, see, all this is in Christ. Just like that sugar squirrel that's in that clear ball, totally protected, everything we are in Christ, this is who we are. And all of our righteousness, sanctification, redemption, it all comes out of 
who we are in Christ, and that can never change. Your salvation rests on one thing, him, not you. Receive that. Keep receiving it. Keep living in that. That's the good news. Um, he, and he finishes just by saying, well, in verse 23, he calls himself a herald, or I herald. I am heralding. It's the, it's the gr- Greek verb keruso. Kerux is the noun. And a herald was just, that was a very, that was a very obvious, very common uh, Greek and Roman classical figure. A herald just came in, in official function. Everything he said was, he had the authority of the person that he was speaking on behalf of. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I have the authority of the living God in preaching this word of the cross, and so do we. So do we, so long as we are preaching the gospel of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the only power that saves. That word of the cross. Nothing else. Nothing else. That's it. So we are called to be heralds of that to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family, to our enemies, to everyone we encounter under this creation, in our words and in our actions, in our prayers, in our laying our lives down, because guess what? Who cares about being forgotten by men? We're known by God. We will never be forgotten. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for this good news that we get to herald. It's good because you're good. It's good because you blew our minds and our hearts by doing something, even though you wrote it down through Moses and the wisdom writers and your prophets, even though it was right there for us, it was so beyond us, so far above us, especially with regard to our character, because when we see power, we grasp it. We would never let it go. We would never take the ring into Mount Doom, but you came down and were destroyed as it were. I say it with reverence. You were torn asunder body and soul for us. And that was your greatest conquest, being conquered, so that we, because we couldn't do it. And so we worship you as that God who was willing to be made an absolute fool of. And now you get all glory. And I pray that our lives would give you all glory and that we would not shun being fools for you, but rather embrace it and proclaim it. We love you. We bless you. We give all of our rag rights to you. Take them, crucify them, bury them, and resurrect us. Holy Spirit, come as we feed on you together. Amen.